Okay, well, as you know, our theme this year in women's ministry, or I think most of you know, our theme this year in women's ministry is the word, anybody remember? Steadfast. Whoever said, thank you. Somebody's paying attention this year. You've got bookmarks that talk about it, and so steadfast is our theme. And if there's ever a time that we need to be challenged to stay steadfast, it's in the days that we're living now, where who knows what's ahead, but we need to stay firm and solid in our faith. And so James addressed that in the fall. Uh, he was writing to believers who were going through persecution and could be shaken in their faith. And now we're addressing a similar audience uh, of people who were maybe shaken and they need to stay steadfast. So that is carrying through our theme this year. We have so much to cover uh, with the introduction and the first two chapters of Hebrews. So I'm just going to tell you right up front, we're going to fly through this this morning, and I'm probably going to talk faster than I usually do, and just hang in there, but I'm not going to be able to go into as much detail as I would have if we had taken introduction one week, chapter one one week, but hang in there. So let's just dive in. What I'm going to do this morning is really take this in two sections, Uh, I'm going to give you an overview of Hebrews, and then I'm going to give you, we're going to talk about the message of chapters 1 and 2, and that's how we're going to divide it up. So let's jump in with the overview. Anytime you study a book and you start out, you want to get the big picture of that book, why it was written, who, and all that. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to go through this pretty quickly. First, we need to look at the author and who wrote it. Now, on your, in your book, on page 14, you can take notes. So, um, just want to tell you that there's room in your books to take notes. Page 14. So, the overview, the author. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, to make that answer very simple, we don't know. Uh, we don't know who wrote it. There have been suggestions made, but he never identifies himself. And there's no clear-cut hints or clues that tell us specifically who wrote it. And so we don't know. There have been names suggested like Paul, Barnabas, Luke, Apollos, even Priscilla. But I will say the one thing we do know about the author is that he was a male, not a female. Because the pronouns that he uses for himself are in the masculine, not the feminine. Dr. Allman and I were just talking about this a few weeks ago. So it was not written by Priscilla or any woman. It was a man, but that's really all we know. Other than also, he knew his Greek very well because this was a book written in beautiful Greek. And he knew the Levitical system. He was very familiar. So he may have come from a Jewish background. Uh, He was personally known by his audience. And he knew his audience well. But we're just going to take that, agree with the church father, Oregon, who said, no one but the father knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. So then we move to the next question. When was it written, the date? We don't know. 
we don't know a definite date, but we have a window of when it was probably written. Um, and you'll read in commentaries, and you can read one, it'll say, oh, it was this date, this date. But we know it had to be before A.D. 70, because that's when the temple was destroyed. And that's never mentioned in this letter, and it would have been had it been destroyed. So we know it was before A.D. 70. Plus, they were still apparently carrying out the Levitical um, sacrifices and all. And so we know it had to be before A.D. 70. Nero's persecutions, his bloody persecutions, because when he first started, it wasn't so bad, but then he kind of became a real brutal, ruthless uh, leader, and his persecutions that got really bad began in A.D. 64. And so a lot of scholars think it, it was probably written right before that or maybe at the very beginning because in Hebrews 12, he says, you have not suffered or perse been persecuted yet to the point of shedding blood. So, it, so we take the window of somewhere between 63 and 65 A.D. Now, you'll hear some that will say later, some will say earlier. That's the best window, I think, that we have. But we know before A.D. 70. Okay, third, the recipients. Who did he write this letter to? Well, again, we don't really know. Um, that's the thing about this book. There's so many unknowns. We do know a few things, though. Like in my Bible, it says the letter to the Hebrews. So it's believed that these were Jews who converted to Christianity, who became Christians. And we know that it was also written to a specific group of people in a specific locality. Um, it's not like a round-robin letter that made its way around uh, different churches. It was sent to a specific area, a specific group, because he was so familiar with what was going on in their spiritual lives, that he obviously was talking to a specific group. We just don't know where. Uh, some have said Rome. They think this was a group in Rome. But that's about the best we can do. We, we know that they're probably Jewish Christians. Fourth, the style. You know, in what style was it written? Well, it says the letter to the Hebrews, and yet... It's not really written like a letter. I, so-and-so, to, you, so-and-so. Greetings from... It's written more like a sermon that's written down. He wrote out his sermon. And it's a letter of exhortation. I mean, he has five warnings that we're going to look at during this, this book. But it, it's uh, more of a, a word of exhortation. He's spurring them on like a sermon. And then fifth, the theme. What is the theme of this book? And it's pretty clear even in chapter 1. The theme is the superiority of Christ. Christ is superior to everything and everyone else. And then we come to, uh, and I don't think she has this in your book, but I think this is very important, the purpose. Why did he even write this book to these people? I think uh, we always need to try to assess the purpose of a book because it helps us understand his, his thought. And so I'm going to give you a threefold purpose 
of why he wrote this book. One was to establish the superiority of Christ, which we just talked about as the theme. He wanted to establish that Christ was better than all that went before, the Old Covenant, the Levitical system, and then prophets, everything. So he wanted to establish that Christ is superior. He's better than anything, anyone else. The second purpose is to encourage the believers to persevere in their faith. They were, um, as I said, Jewish believers who had come to Christ and they were apparently considering going back to Judaism, uh, back to the familiar, to the easy, uh, things that were easier maybe. And they were, uh, perhaps because they were starting to see some of Nero's persecutions and they thought, you know what, I think I'm, this Christianity is too risky. I'm going to go back to what I'm familiar with. That's the other thing. They wanted familiarity. Uh, they were having to leave their synagogues and, and their family, and who knows, they may have been ostracized by their families. Uh, there's several reasons why, but they, they were thinking about going back, and maybe they just thought, you know what, I'm familiar with the Levitical system. I like familiar. I want to go back. But that's why he wrote this letter, was to encourage them you persevere. You hang in there. Don't go back to Judaism. You stay with your Christian faith. And then the third reason is to encourage the believers to mature in their faith. And we see that at the beginning of chapter 2 and then following chapters. Some of them are not growing. Yes, they have come to Christ, but they're content with staying as a, a brand new believer. And he is spurring them on and saying, do not settle for status quo in your faith. Keep growing to maturity. So that's all the overview. A lot there. That could have taken a whole week. But now we're going to move into the second part, the message of chapters 1 and 2. That's on pages 32 and 33 in your book, if you want to take notes in your book. Again, there's a lot to cover. I can't cover everything uh, the way I'd like to, but we're going to fly through this. Again, his message in these first two chapters are very straightforward. Jesus is superior to the angels. Therefore, worship Jesus, not angels. And you may be wondering, well, why would he even need to address and warn them against worshiping angels? Because we think about it in our time today. I mean, most of us in this room, I hope, are not worshiping angels. I mean, yeah, we, we kind of can get fascinated with them or we'll talk about our guardian angel or uh, we're familiar with the movies. I think everybody probably watched It's a Wonderful Life and watched Clarence get his wings and the saying of when you hear a bell ring, an angel gets his wings. You know, we, we, we kind of enjoy those movies, but we don't worship angels. But we have to go back to the, to the original audience. And the original audience had some issues with this. They were worshiping angels. Some were, not all, but some were. Or they had the tendency to do it. Uh, one, because the law had been given 
through the angels to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so they kind of thought, oh, they're these great beings if they were given the law. Another reason is because the angels played a big role in the Old Testament in events that happened as well as with people. And they, they were familiar with the Old Testament. And so they were thinking, these are great beings. And then in the, the first century, there were false teachers that were teaching, you should worship angels. So at that time, this was a really big issue. I don't feel like I need to stand here and tell y'all, don't worship angels. I don't think you're worshiping angels. But uh, for them, it was a much bigger situation. So the author begins this book by giving three reasons in chapters 1 and 2 why Jesus is superior to the angels. So first, the reason is because Jesus is God and the angels are not. We see this in the very first four verses of Hebrews 1. And he begins, I'm not going to be able to read many of the verses for time, but I want to start with just the beginning of Hebrews 1 when he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. And I'm going to stop there. He is God. We don't need prophets anymore to tell us God's message because God in these last days, and these last days is the period we're in today, from his first coming to when he returns, God speaks to us in his son. And it isn't so much that Jesus brought a message from the Father like the prophets did. They would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus is the message. And we read his word, his life, his story in the New Testament. And Jesus speaks as God the Son. And instead of him saying, thus says the Lord, as he's teaching, he's saying, truly, I say to you. And he says, I am. And he is speaking as God. Remember when we studied the names of God? Every name was fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus. And so he is the message. We don't need prophets to tell us the message. He is the message. He spoke the message. And we still have his word as his message today. This is, his words are right here. So in this section, under the he's God, the first reason, he gives seven truths in verses 2 to 4 that affirm his deity. Now, I have given you a handout on the paper because I'm going to just run through these very quickly, and I know that some of you would be saying, slow down, I can't write that fast. So we're not going to, you're not even going to have to write this down, because we're going to fly through this. Uh, seven truths that he talked about in these first four, or verses two through four, that affirm his deity. And you're going to, the number seven signifies completeness. So he, he's going to give you seven truths and he's going to move into seven Old Testament passages completing that whole picture of Jesus being God. So let me just run through this again very quickly. First, he's the heir of all things. This is referring to his status 
as firstborn over all creation. And that's mentioned in Colossians 1.15. Because he's the firstborn, all things will fall under his authority. So he's the heir of all things. Second, he is the creator. He created everything, and he wasn't created. He is the creator. Angels were created. Third, he is the radiance of God's glory. Meaning that we can't see God in all his radiance, his majesty, but we can see the radiance of him shining off Jesus. I I think of it, and this has been compared to like, you can't look directly in the sun without hurting your eyes. But you can see the radiance of the sun. And I I think of the sunset. Last week I saw the most beautiful sunset where the sky was lit up red. I couldn't see the sun. It was below the houses. But oh my goodness. That's what he's talking about. When you see Jesus, you see all the radiance of God. Then fourth, he is the exact representation of his nature. That's like a stamp or an impression. Think about a coin we have a president's face that is stamped or engraved on that corn, coin. And that picture of the president or whoever it is, is an exact representation of the real person. Jesus is that exact representation of God the Father. Fifth, he upholds all things by the word of his power. In verse 3. And uphold is it's not so much a sense of he's carrying everything, but he's maintaining. It's more a word signifying he maintains everything. He is carrying everything forward on its course and its planned purpose. You know, the sun rises every morning. We don't ever have to question that. It sets. The stars are always in their designated places. And they don't fall out of the sky and kill us. They're always dependable. And Jesus is the one who upholds all things. You know, when he was on the earth, he calmed the storms. He maintains and keeps everything going as God. And then six, he made purification of sins. Angels can't do that. Uh, And then seven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that verb sat has two emphases. One, it shows that Christ's work on this earth is finished. The angels never sit because their work isn't finished. If you think about the Old Testament tabernacle, there were no chairs in the tabernacle for the priests to sit down on because their work was never finished. But Jesus' work is, his work on this earth is done. But the second emphasis is that it indicates position and power. And so he is ruling, he is with his father. So he summarizes in verse 4, Therefore, because Jesus is God, he is better, much better, than the angels. He says in verse 4, having become as much better than the angels. So those seven truths point to his deity. That's the first reason why he's better, because he is God. Second reason is because Jesus is the exalted king. Verse 5 through 
13, really almost the whole rest of the chapter. You know, they talk, they prophesy, they spoke about this eternal king that would one day rule. Well, that is Jesus. And again, on your sheet that I gave you as a handout, uh, I, I gave you uh, the truths from, he, he gives seven Old Testament quotes to affirm that Jesus is this long-awaited king. And he emphasized his reign in the future as God's king and David's son. And so I'm going to just mention these on your paper. We're not going to spend time on it. But, you know, first, he's the son of God. Second, he's the promised son of David that we read about so much in the Old Testament and the Psalms. Third, he is worshipped by angels. They're not objects of worship. They are worshipers. They are worshiping him. Verse 7, his ministry is not that of a temporary servant like the angels had little short, I mean, they had fire and they had little winds, but it wasn't a permanent thing. Five, he has an eternal throne. When he comes back and he rules in the millennium, that is the beginning, I mean, eternally, that it will continue in verses 8 and 9. Verse 6, he is the unchanging eternal creator. Never changes, and he's always been the creator, verses 10 to 12. And then he is the sovereign ruler over his enemies. He is eternal. There was no beginning, there was no end. The angels have a beginning. They were created at some point. Jesus is better. His work is completed. He's seated. They're not seated. He is on the throne, and he always will be on the throne. He has an eternal throne. So why worship angels when Jesus is so much better? And then verse 14, he goes into, at the end of uh, chapter 1, he, he kind of tells us who these angel, who angels are and what their purpose is. He says in verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So he tells us who they are. They are spirits. They're not flesh and blood. And what is their purpose? To render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Now, there are people who look at that and they say, well, he's, they minister to non-believers because he's talking about they will inherit salvation. But I remember my seminary professor talking about this word salvation here is referring to our future salvation, which is salvation from the presence of sin. Right now, we're saved from the penalty of sin. But one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. And so he is saying here, angels are ministering to all believers, present and future. So that is who they are. You know, I'm not sure if I've ever seen an angel. I don't know that I have. There's only one time in my life that I actually thought, God, I wonder if that was an angel. Uh, I got lost uh, on the back roads in western Kentucky. One night I had a student with me and we were trying to get back to western Kentucky and it was dark and we took a wrong turn somewhere and I just thought, I have no idea how we're going to get out of here. And we pulled over at this little place that had some, uh, it was a gas station, but there wasn't really anybody around. And this 
truck pulls up and this guy gets out and I'm like, uh-oh. And he comes up and he says, ma'am, you need to turn around and go back until you get to the first red light, take a left, that will get you back to where you're going. And so I thought, okay. And I got in the car and I told my student, I said, you know, I don't know who this guy was. And he was gone. I mean, I turned around and I said, well, he's not there. But there was a guy in his pickup truck. I don't know, but he was right. He, he gave me the exact directions. I don't know if I've ever seen an angel, but they minister in so many different ways to believers. But we don't worship them because they're not God. So um, we see then at the beginning of chapter 2, we move into chapter 2, and we see the first warning of five that we're going to look at in this book. And that's really in verses 1 to 4. He begins this, for this reason, meaning because Jesus is God and because Jesus is the exalted king that has been prophesied about, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. I love how he says we. He's not pointing his finger and going, you, Lorinda, need to pay attention. We need to pay attention. And that is so true for us today. And why? Because if if disregard for Moses' law in the Old Testament brought such severe punishment, God said, if you disobey, I'll curse you. How much greater punishment we will experience today with the new covenant, with our salvation, that is a gift if we neglect it, if we forget about it, disregard it. You know, again, they were thinking about going back to their Jewish roots because they thought it might be easier and more familiar. We have a tendency as humans to always want to go back to a time when things were familiar, when they were easy, The Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt when they were in the wilderness because they didn't like the hardship. I think about even how many times I have said over the last two years, God, I just wish we could go back to the way things were before March 2020. But every time I say that, God reminds me, I have you where you are in life for a reason. And I need to accomplish my purpose through the events that are happening in your life right now. And we need to just learn to say, yes, God, you've got me here at this season, in this place, for a purpose. And we, we just keep moving forward. Don't go back to what we used to know or what was easier, more familiar. So we've looked at the first two reasons that he gives for why Jesus is superior. First, because he is God. Second, because he is the exalted king prophesied in the Old Testament. Now we come to the third and last reason that he talks about, and that was that Jesus was fully man. And he really, he takes us from verses 5 to 18, the rest of the chapter 2. You know, some of these believers were apparently uh, struggling with Jesus' humanity, making him a little bit lower 
than the angels in verse 9. And so in chapter 2, he addressed why Jesus' humanity did not make him inferior to angels, but it actually ended up working a purpose that was, made him superior to them. And so he takes time to, to just discuss what Jesus' humanity accomplished that made him superior. So the first thing his humanity accomplished is that he regained man's lost dominion over the earth in verses 5 to 9. You know, God gave man, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, he gave them dominion over the earth. You will rule over, you know, the animals, everything. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost that dominion. They no longer could rule. And as we know, I mean, it's been written, Satan is the ruler of this world. I mean, they lost dominion. But when Jesus came to this earth, he restored what Adam lost as he showed his dominion over this earth. Uh, He calmed the seas. He healed the sick. He did miracles. And when he returns and sets up his eternal kingdom, he will completely restore the dominion over the earth, and what Adam lost. Second thing his humanity accomplished is that he paid the penalty for our sins with his blood. In verse 9, it tells us he tasted death for everything. He died in our place. Verse 17. There had to be a perfect sacrifice, and only Jesus could meet those qualifications because he was fully God, but he was also fully man. Angels could not pay the penalty for our sin because they're spirits. There was, they were not flesh and blood, and there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus had to come as a man to shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice. Third reason, or third thing he accomplished in his humanity is that he defeated the devil in death through his own death and resurrection, verses 14 to 16. He showed Satan when he died and then he was resurrected three days later. He showed Satan that I am more powerful than death. I am more powerful than you are because I defeated the grave. And then fourth, he is a sympathetic high priest to his people, verses 17 to 18. Because he was a man, he can understand what every one of us in this room go through, what we're feeling. He experienced hunger. He experienced pain. He experienced difficult relationships, slander. He experienced disappointment, opposition, even a painful death. And he experienced temptation. And because he experienced temptation, he can come to our aid when we're tempted. And he intercedes for us. I love those last two verses of chapter 2. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He understands. So Jesus is superior to the angels. He is better. 
He's superior to the angels because he is God, because he is the exalted king, and because he was fully man. Therefore, worship Jesus, not angels. Again, I, I, I don't know that you might be sitting there and going, well, this is good to know, but I don't really deal with worshiping angels. But I would guess that there is something, every one of us in this room probably struggle with worshiping something other than God. Something that we give, something or someone that we give our devotion to that we should be giving to God. And so I want to just end by asking you to take some time this week and go before God and, and praise Him that He is all these things and He's done these things. But ask Him to show you, God, is there something that I'm worshiping that I'm putting on a higher pedestal than you? Show me what to do to get my focus back on worshiping you. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in these first two chapters and we barely skim them. But Lord, there's a message in here for all of us. And I pray that we would take to heart just who you are and what you have done and why you alone are the one to be worshipped. So Father, show us if there is something we are worshiping that we shouldn't be. Lord, we love you and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.